Thank you, congregation, for your kind attention today. And we want to join this congregation with uh, Israelite-believing people from throughout America this morning and, of course, across the Atlantic and across the Pacific into Australia, New Zealand, and wherever else Israelites may be living. We welcome you all. And may God bless every one of you from your shoelaces all the way up. And um, we'd like to say this morning that we will be looking at lesson number four of the American Miracle. This will be lesson number four of the American Miracle. If you finish before I do today, raise your hand and I'll hurry. Now, do we have any, if anyone is concerned about this lesson, I need to say something to this congregation. It is not that I ever come behind this pulpit willy-nilly. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, correction, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. Head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. So I'm under the headship of Christ, responsible to him for everything that I say or do not say. Then under Christ, I'm responsible to three ministers who can bring me to toe real quickly. And I welcome their criticism. And then beneath them, there's seven trustees that can put my feet to the fire. And then beneath them, there's a whole congregation of people, including everyone in the very back, who can put me to the fire. So I am humbled today to be here, really, really humbled, and it is in, as Proverbs 1 tells us, the beginning, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. So it's with that great concern that I have. Lesson number four, Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful body of people that you have gathered together, north, south, east, and west, here in southwest Missouri, Bless every man and woman, every boy and girl, every infant child in and out of the womb. And bless all of our family of covenant people across the hinterlands of America and beyond the oceans. Oh, God in heaven, bless us all. Great shepherd, feed us. Oh, blessed Christ, lead us, we pray, to the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. We are passing out a little worksheet today that God willing, I trust, will not be confusing to you. Might be to me, but it should, I hope it will not be to you. So we're in lesson number four of the American Miracle. And I need to to justify this lesson. Why 
am I spending all this time on this subject? Well, here is the reason. I believe that the American nation, the most exceptional nation in the history of the world, is a development of the progressive nature of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant of promise that is repetitiously enumerated in the book of Genesis. America is not an accident on the pages of history. So we need to know and have understanding that the Abrahamic covenant is in full operation today. And do you know that repetitiously in the Bible, when Israel was facing a crisis, they would cry out for God to remember the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant. So I enter this lesson today to remind you that this lesson is not disconnected from the most prevailing covenant in the Bible. And I'd like to have you remember that the first covenant, as well as the last covenant we call the new covenant, the two bookends of the Bible, the new, the old and the new testament, that's the Bible, originate out of the promise God made to Abraham. Think about that because that is the entire Bible that's within the scope of the Abrahamic promise. And that's an awesome thought. So today we continue then, and I ask the question, why do you as a Christian an adult or a young person. I'm speaking now to the young children, to Dustin, to Michael, and to many others. Why would we all need to know the history of our country? Why? Why do you need to know something about the past? Do you know that we are all standing on the shoulders of those who have preceded us in time? If we disconnect from the past then we have little, little knowledge of where they, we might be going in the future. Those who forget their past, do not know it, will have a clouded future at best. And you will not only be seeing the future through a glass darkly, but you're going to be lost a good part of the time. So the better your understanding is about your past, the better you will be able to navigate the future. And a word to the parents is this. I believe that we all have a responsibility in the home. That's why we send our children to a Christian school. And from this pulpit, everyone needs to be knowing, learning, growing in their understanding of where we are in time, in Bible truth, in history, and where we may be going for the future. 
Now, we don't know what lies ahead, church, but we know that our God is a God of miracles and America is resting on endless layers of miracles and the providential goodness of God. Were it not for the providence of God, not a single one of us would be here today. We are children of God's providence. The providence of God is the prevailing, overarching blessing that we all share. Because His providence is the exercise of His sovereignty in all of history. So there are three big reasons why we need this lesson and, a con and the lessons that have preceded. We need to know something about our heritage. Our children deserve to know this. They not, should never be, we should never think of our children growing up in a vacuum of ignorance. They need to know. And I must say, I am appalled at the ignorance that prevails in America today about this country. I'm, a, I'm amazed. I'm in I mean, not only am I, I, I'm just utterly amazed that people do not even know who George Washington was. It's pathetic. Well, so we need to know and have an understanding of our heritage. And our children were not born with this knowledge, church. Parents, your children were not born knowing anything. And it's only what they are inculcated with, only what is placed into their minds while they're under your custody, are they being prepared for the world into which they will live. It's an awesome responsibility to be parents, to be teachers, to be preachers, to be educators and pass on information to our children. So that's reason number one for this series. And then number two, we need to know that we live in a generation that is witnessing the canceling of the history of who we are as a people. White people's history is being erased, sanitized, canceled and eliminated in the new books now being written, history books, etc. And it's shameful, church. And we dare not lose the heritage and the truth and let our children grow up robbed of that heritage. They, we cannot suffer our children to grow up in ignorance. So I pray that all the children today that are able to follow will fill out this outline. I didn't work this outline up as an exercise in finding something positive to do. I thought it was something that might be important. So number two, the reason for this lesson is because they are removing our heritage from all textbooks, from the television screen, the movies. And America is being reduced down to a horrible description of what it really is. And then number three, 
Let me read from a little book that was published in 1988. That's 35 years ago. And the preface of this book has an interesting name to it. I won't tell you what it is because this book is in the bookstore. It's called The Birthing of America. The author of this book is someone that you know very well. Now, the author of this book quotes here from Charles Andrews, a historian who said this. So I'm going to quote out of this little book that's in the bookstore. And it says here, quote, A nation's attitude toward its own history is like a window into the soul. And the men and women of such a nation can never be expected to meet their obligations if they refuse to exhibit honesty, charity, and other things, including a free and growing intelligence toward the past that has made them what they are. End of quote. So that little book written by Pastor Gray Clark has an introduction that you might want to check out. It's yours for the taking in the bookstore. So we owe then the knowledge of the past to our children who are living in the present and will be in the future for a long time. So we pick up today where we left off, and that is we came to the, to the end of the French and Indian War of 1754 to 1763. Now I know none of us were living there, some of you may feel old enough to be, have lived there, but we were not. French and Indian War was no little war. It's actually a global war. The first, we could, I think it would qualify to be called the First World War. Because it involved the three greatest powers of Europe. The British Empire, the French, and the Spanish world. Those three powerful Israelite nations, they're all our people, were competing. They were competing for the prize of the then known world, and that was America. This vast, unexplored land called America, with 3,777 plus square miles of unexplored territory, and, and nobody really knew much about that great land, except that it was filled with beaver, all kinds of wildlife, savages roamed it, nomadic savages roamed the entire width and breadth of that land. And the Europeans thought, well, there might be gold, and there might be Fortunes made in the fur trade, and there were. So here come the French. Here come the Spanish. Here come the English, all wanting their fair slice of the land we're sitting on here today. 
So I think our children have a reasonably good expectation that we pass along a little information to them. And of course, this is only intended to back up and reinforce what they maybe already know. Many of them have already heard a lot of this. When the French and Indian War came to an end with the Treaty of Paris in 1763, that the conclusion of that war, which was actually waged in America, in Europe, even to an extent in India and all across the Caribbean, that was a major war church. And the, the American colonies are just one little tiny piece of that great conflict. And so the part of it that impacted America is the part that has great interest to us. At the end of that war, Great Britain was the victor. Now the end of the French and Indian War meant this. What it meant was that when God made a promise to Abraham, he's not going to turn loose to the promise. And the, and the, and the British prevailed because they are part of the birthright given to Joseph through Manasseh, a correction, Ephraim, I should have said. The British Empire was the fulfillment of the prophetic promise given to Joseph to be fulfilled in Ephraim. And America was no less important because it's going to become that great nation of Genesis 48, verse 19, and of what we read in Genesis 35, 11. Now you'll remember in Genesis 35, 11, when Jacob had returned from serving long years of servitude to Laban for his beautiful wife, Rachel, and he ended up with Leah in the process, as well as Zilpha and, Bil and Bilhah. But we won't go into that story, just except to say that the United States of America is identified in Genesis 35, verse 11. So if you're going to be a student of the Bible, and you're going to be able to pass on information to your children, you ought to be able to identify the nation and the company of nations that was to arise out of Jacob's family of sons, tribes that became great nations, all in fulfillment of the unconditional promise of covenant made to Abraham. So with those thoughts in mind, beloved, remember now, at the end of the French and Indian War, the British inherited all the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River. It ended at the Mississippi River because they didn't own that land. It wasn't as if our people did not wrestle, struggle, and wage heroic efforts to fulfill manifest destiny.
Americans sacrificed endlessly for this country. Like to remind everyone of the mothers who gave birth in little cabins, in Conestoga wagons. Imagine giving birth in the hygienic conditions of a Conestoga wagon. Imagine the parents that buried their children in the sacrifices that were made for this country to grow. Imagine the men who with an axe and a rifle and a lot of courage faced savages, many of them with the poorest of shoes and clothing. And remember that the lifespan of those early Americans, when they reached the age of 40, their life is pretty well spent. If they make it to 50, God is really blessing them. And those that went beyond 50 were blessed in ways past finding out. So there's a great history of sacrifice behind this country. Now at the end of the French and Indian War then, that was a monumental moment because it, it did something that is significant. So let's look at our worksheet here. French and Indian War in America was a global war in the sense that we've already mentioned France, Spain, and England were involved. And the wage, waging of that war expanded beyond Europe and all the way to America and to else, other places as well. Now, when the war ended then, Great Britain triumphed in three major ways. And I shouldn't be using the word great yet because Britain had not I don't think quite significantly moved to the word, to the descriptive word great yet, but it's on its way. First of all, the British expanded their holdings in this country all the way from the Atlantic, all the way from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River. That was a monumental achievement with a, a piece of real estate that was hard to be matched in any part of Europe, unless you go into Eastern Europe. So they, they expanded their territory, number one. It gave them global dominance. Now, they're sort of in the driver's seat, but don't get the idea that France and Spain are not still powerful. They are. But Britain is now the dominant power. And number three, sadly for those who lived in this country, the end of the French and Indian War was only the beginning of their giant trouble, because now England was more free from their concerns about European enemies 
they could now focus their attention on who? You guessed it, the American colonies. And don't, for, don't be afraid to speak out, church. Help me, help me in this lesson, if you, if you will. So now the colonies are under the scrutiny of their, their big brother. So King George, King George is going to be looking hard at these teenage rebellion-oriented Americans over across the Atlantic. Remember now, we're part of the British Empire at that time. We're under the crown. We're under the king. We're just a part of that country called Britain. And so we have then the British now putting the laser beam on the colonies to bring them into better control. And after all now, the consequences of the French-Indian War on the colonies was monumental. So number one, the end of this war gave colonial America a lot more security because now the savage Indians that have been killing the English, and I mean they were murdering them right and left, they'd find an isolated pioneer family and cut their throats Many of, them, many of them practice cannibalism. If you haven't read Scalp Dance, read it. And you'll know why Thomas Jefferson used the word savage in the Declaration of Independence to describe the aborigine Native Americans called Indians. They were a very uncivilized uncivilized heathen people. So America now has the freedom to let the Indians know, and, and these Indians had mostly favored the French. Remember in that fearsome battle that George Washington nearly lost his life in, that battle along the Monongahela River, the French won that battle because of Indian support. They put rifles in the hands of some, some Indians, hundreds of them. And they knew how to fight in the woods. And the British redcoats, they're used to marching right out in front in the open and they, they were not ready for guerrilla warfare. So, there, more security came to the colonies. But don't think for a moment, church, that the French, just because the British have won the French-Indian War, the French are still very much a presence there. And it's going to be a while before they withdraw and and, and peace really reigns. Then number two, it, the, the consequences of the French-Indian War opened the door for God's sovereign will to advance the Abrahamic covenant. You've heard of the term manifest destiny. I will assure you that 
phrase has a biblical connotation as well. So it, it advanced, it advanced the way for God's sovereign will to unfold. And number three, it initiated, sadly, growing conflict between Great Britain and the colonies. It caused the colonies to suffer now because Great Britain is going to try and to put more pressure on these colonies to, do, to, to, to pay for that war. So, number four, the French-Indian War left Great Britain with enormous debt. That war that raged from 1754 to 1763 had forced Britain to accumulate a lot of debt. So, who do you think they wanted to pay that debt? They wanted your colonial forebears to fork over the money. Problem is those colonies had no representation in the British Parliament. There at the, you know, there's the victims of whatever the British Parliament and the King decide to do for them in the way of taxes. So that left England with an enormous debt and they expected the American colonies to assist in a major way in the payment of this debt. Now you may have heard in your history class of the Sugar Act passed in 5 April 1764 by the British Parliament. That was only one, but that was among the more egregious pieces of legislation that was passed by the British Parliament. So now, the squeeze is on to gain more money from the colonists to pay for that war. And they have no one to represent them significantly in England because they have no representation in the Parliament. And King George had anything but sympathy for the colonies. He looked at them as a group of ragtag rebels, teenagers, so to speak, that needed to be paddled and good. So following the French-Indian War, Great Britain made two major demands on the colonists. I'm in the middle of the worksheet. Number one, he increased the taxation upon the colonists. And in so doing, he gave closer scrutiny to those colonial children. And number two, the British Parliament, in concert with King George, decided not only will the colonies help pay for that war, but they did not want them to settle beyond the Appalachian Mountains going west toward the Mississippi until they gave the green light. Now you people know, if you've traveled back east, you know that once you gain 
westward travel beyond the Appalachians, you're in that great expanse of Ohio River Valley, and it's a beautiful area. Name some states out of that today. That would have included a whole parcel of states. Yeah, there's just a whole legion of them. Uh, the Shelby family left one of those. As a matter of fact, Jacob left one of those. All kinds of, of us sitting here today came from that region. Now the colonists looked at that, and you know, folks, that when God put the call of dominion upon the Adam kind people, He said, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, take dominion of this earth. And that urge to dominion, that desire to clear, the, to clear a path forward could not be stopped by the wishes of a king and the wishes of a British parliament. So those settlers are not going to stay like little children on the, on, uh, on the east side of those Appalachians. They're, they're headed west. Go west, young man, go west. So they began to uh, irritate the king, and they irritated the parliament because they were stubborn in many ways. So I don't mean to indicate, you know, that the colonists were really mean, but they were fierce self-rugged independence. Now, independent people, I'd like you to think of something, if you will. You mathematicians calculate this. From 1607 to the start of the American Revolutionary War in April 1775, I believe that's 169 years. In 169 years, the Americans have grown to be a rugged, hard. They're, they're a, a, a group of, they're a nation of self-reliant people. Nothing was given to them. Generation upon generation had with their bare hands carved out of this country a new life. And their, their rugged, independent spirit is not easy for a king 3,000 miles away and a British parliament to issue all kinds of edicts and expect them to be obeyed. So, I'm at that point where it says, at this time the American colonies had no representation in the British Parliament. And King George III, who ruled from 1760 to 1820, incidentally, he was preceded by George II. Now that's a marvelous revelation, isn't it? George III followed George II, showed no sympathy toward the colonists at all. The king had not one iota of sympathy for those colonists. For the king and the British Parliament, they existed to make Great Britain great. And that came through taxation and through whatever other means they could find the colonies profitable.
So this growing friction between Great Britain and the colonies from 1763 to the outbreak of the War of Independence, I think that might be about 12 years. If you lived in America during those 12 years, the talk was no longer about all the French activity with the Indians and how dangerous it was to live on the outskirts of the settlements along the English seaboard. But now the concern is for that monster across the ocean who's making our lives miserable. Talking now about the British Parliament and King George. So now we have growing friction between Great Britain and the colonies. And there's much that could be said here, church. We are skimming. How many of you remember growing up milking cows and your mother would say, skim the cream so we can make butter? We're just skimming through here. To give any kind of detail, we would be talking about American history, I think, the rest of this year. So we're just, we're just, this is a digest of digest. But let's look at something, because the British Parliament did something, they did something on April, correction on that, the British Parliament, by a legislative decision on December 22nd, 1775, they passed what is known as the Prohibitory Act. Now, I looked this up on the internet, and there's all kinds of information on it. Strangely enough, in many of the history books, I can't even find much about it. But it was one of the leading causes of the American break with Great Britain. The Prohibitory Act. Now, the little book that I had referenced here moments ago that's in the bookstore, that is the subject of this book. That the, Ameri the American War of Independence was not a revolution, not a rebellion. It was a war of independence because they had been left orphaned by the King of England. The King of England had washed his hands of the colonies and he had in so many ways abandoned them. Now they're under the crown, they're under the king. These are children under that awesome King of England. Now what are they supposed to do when the king abandons them? What in the world are they supposed to do? Well, in a little bit, we're going to find out. But the Prohibitory Act is important because it did three things. Number one, the king abandoned the colonies. He, he, he asserted that he would no longer be their protector. Whatever's going to happen in those 
colonial territories, colonial places in America. King of England's not going to send any help to you, nor is the British Parliament. You're, no more security for you people. And I'll read a statement out of the Declaration of Independence of how serious they were. So here is the second thing the Prohibitory Act did. It declared a commercial war against the colonies. They are now going to be hamstrung in all commercial trading with anyone beyond the borders of their own little American colonial part of the world. So it's going to have a terrific impact on the colonies. The Prohibitory Act is, as one historian said, nothing less than a declaration of war by the King of England against the colonies. So it's not like these Americans are just rebels wanting to foment a revolution. And please, young people, don't you ever allow somebody to equate the American War of Independence with a revolution that's anywhere close to the French Revolution of 1789 or the Russian Revolution of 19, uh, the early 1900s. They are totally different. We're talking about revolution, the overthrow of government versus the peaceful attempt of a body of little colonies to reconcile with their parent, that is, the Parliament and the King of England. And what would you do as a teenager if your parents opened the door and said, out of here, you're on your own. And then... You wait a few years till that child is on his own doing well and you say, hey, I'd like to have some honor from you. I'd like to have some obedience. You're going to have to really work hard to get their, uh, their attention then. You cannot abandon your children, parents, we all know that, and expect them to continue to love you years after the fact. So this prohibitory act, and it's explained in this little booklet that I said, but you can go on the internet and it'll tell you right out it was a, the same as a declaration of war against the colonies by the King of England and the British Parliament. So I mentioned that in this worksheet. So that brings us then to the arrival of the War of Independence and the fighting of the American Revol... Uh, nope, excuse me, I can't use that word. I'm not going to use the word American Revolutionary War. No, no, that's a, that's a no-no. I've got to use the War of Independence. The War for American Independence from a king and a parliament who had abandoned us left us out in the cold, and they were trying now, after that, to extract every ounce of taxation they could gather. 
And so this invites you to remember your, your uh, study of the tea party and all the other things that happened. This is a rich part of our history leading up to the American War of Independence. So I'd like for this congregation to know then that the War of Independence that began on April 1970, 1775, that War of Independence that was first, the first shots of that war were fired from where? Where was the first battle? I'm going to give you the first word. Lexington and Concord. The shots heard around the world that opened up the American War of Independence. Who fired the first shot? Who pulled the trigger? I think I won't say because nobody can be emphatically accurate about that. That's what happens. And by that time, remember that King George had established garrisons of redcoats to be housed in colonial homes, to be cared for, to be cooked for by colonial wives and mothers. The army that was sent to the colonies have to be cared for by the colonies. How's that for rubbing salt into an open wound? Do you think colonial homes were happy with their red coat house guests? Don't think so. Well, that was just one of many things that they were pushing colonial America into. Now, I sound very pro-American. And if we had a British historian here, they would be telling you how rebellious those colonies were. Well, Americans had learned through independent struggle living in a primitive, uncivilized world, claiming a civilized life amid the trees, the briars, the brambles, the savages, the roaring rivers of the Mississippi, not the Mississippi yet, but the Ohio, its tributaries, and all the rivers east of the Appalachians. This country was being carved out by bare hands from the nature, from nature, from the, from the, I mean, we owe a tremendous amount of respect to the generations that have preceded us here and made us able to turn on these electric lights. What do you think George Washington and Daniel Boone would think they could walk into an air-conditioned building and see it lit up with electricity. They wouldn't even know what to think because they didn't have that kind of a world. So we need to have, and our children need to have, and they need to grow up with an understanding of that. 
So, young people, children, boys and girls, get your worksheet out. Let's, we don't want to play church. Let's go. The Declaration of Independence. Oh, what a document. Now, I'm going to test your knowledge here of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to ask you just a few questions. And I wouldn't care if you just spoke out loud to answer them. In fact, I, might, I think it might be good if you did. So let me ask you right now some questions about the Declaration of Independence. A committee was assigned to write the Declaration. Now, the Declaration of Independence didn't come until after the Prohibitory Act previously talked about. It followed, not preceded, the Prohibitory Act of December 1775. Now, it did follow the opening rounds of the War of Independence. But remember, the Prohibitory Act is being handed down to the colonies when they're struggling for their very existence against the British Redcoats they were being asked to take care of. So, there were... I believe five men assigned to write the Constitution. Who wrote it? Thomas Jefferson. Speak up, please. Don't be, don't be afraid of being wrong. Now, his work was reviewed and maybe little changes were made here and there. Thomas Jefferson was the central author of this famous document. How many men signed it? 56 men. These are basic bits of knowledge that we, we really ought, all of us, to know. Somebody interviewed you and they said, how many men signed the Declaration of Independence? You ought to be able to say, 56. What race were they of? They were all Anglo-Saxon Caucasian. Not 55 of them, but all 56 of them. Today, anybody that was back there that was white and did anything have been erased now and shamed by many that are writing the 1619 project of history now being incorporated in all the big urban schools. These are bits of information that young people in our public schools particularly in the large urban schools, high schools, middle schools, or, God forbid, in the universities. They're never going to hear this. When the Declaration of Independence was written, the first paragraph, and I quote, says this, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God 
entitled them, A Decent Respect to the Opinions of Mankind, and so forth. The beginning of the next paragraph, and you can say this with me, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That doesn't mean they're all alike. That is, and they're only, Thomas Jefferson's introducing these words to a white world. They're, they're written for the, for the colonists, about three and a half million white Anglo-Saxon, mostly English colonists is who this is talking about. And he says, when they're all created equal, it means equal before God and God's law. Had nothing else to mean, meant nothing else. And that's what all of us need to know today, that in Christ, we are all, male and female, German, Scandinavian, Scotch, Irish, English, whatever European background, we are all Israelites before God and His law. Equal. None of us have a higher standing than the other. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with what? Certain unalienable rights. That, the, that among these are life, liberty, Help me, young people, come on. And the pursuit of happiness. Now, wait a minute. Do you know what happiness meant in 1775? Happiness is where you sit under your own fig tree. It's the right to own property that has no tax upon it. It can be passed on to future generations unencumbered. That's what happiness is. Happiness is not turning on the TV and listening to a Hollywood movie and two strange people kissing each other. That is not what happiness is. That's probably the road to unhappiness. But owning property in 1775 was a wonderful thing. Did they, most of the people in Europe had never experienced that. Because they were all lands owned by the king and the church. So it goes on to say that to secure these rights. Now incidentally, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to Thomas Jefferson's pen, this is an unalienable right, meaning these rights are derived from God not man. Do you know that's a revolutionary thought in history? That God is the author of the rights of man? If you read the Declaration of Rights that was issued in the French Revolution, 
or the Declaration of Rights under the communist world. Wow. America was the first experience, uh, exper first exper experiment in history that granted every individual God-given rights and allowed every man to have an equal start in life. To allow any American that had ambition, drive, self-reliance, could go out and make his way in the world. In Europe, in many cases, you were born into a caste system. If you were born into a poor system, you probably are going to stay there. America let the poorest rise to become whatever they chose to be. Many way, in many ways, we can still do that, but with a lot less freedom than they had when the Declaration in the years after that. Now, I'm not going to continue reading the Declaration of Independence except accepting that as I go deeper into this document, I am compelled to read to the congregation, and I hope Dustin and Michael are listening. They need to be. Here is what Thomas Jefferson said that the king and the parliament were doing to the colonies. This is why we declared independence, not a revolution from our daddy and mother. I'll call the king the daddy, parliament the mother, for lack of a better I'm just trying to get the children to remember this. Here's what Thomas Jefferson said about the king and the parliament. You have taken away our charters. That's the original charters under which they were founded. Abolishing our most valuable laws and, alt and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. That's a radical statement of what's happening to those poor colonists. You have suspended our own legislatures, declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Wow. Now here's the one that I'm going to uh, punctuate really boldly. I have a star here written to remind myself. So here it is. The king, he, has advocated government here in the colonies by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. That is a direct, a direct result of the Prohibitary Act previously discussed. So here we are, church. This Declaration of Independence is our birth certificate. When the 4th of July comes, we ought to be doing more than drinking lemonade and looking for a firecracker. 
we ought to be thinking about those who fought and who died. Many, many, many of the signers of this Declaration of Independence, 56 of them, are going to fight in the war for independence and many of them are going to suffer immeasurably. Some of them will watch their houses burn to the ground. Others will lose their lives. Some will see their family desecrated. What price did they pay? And how ought we today have an appreciation for those who have gone before us? Now, we're at the bottom of the first page of this outline, which actually exceeded my expectations. So, I want to praise my Father in heaven that we got farther than I intended. So, I'm going to mark this where I have written by Thomas Jefferson with 56 signatures, all of whom were white, if you're afraid of the word white, sorry. If you're an American, you ought to be thankful for something white. Most of them were, most of them were devout. What word belongs in that blank? Christian. And blank leaders. What kind of leaders? Church leaders. They were vestrymen. They were elders. They, were all kind, they filled all kinds of positions in churches. This was not a willy-nilly body of rag muffins who wrote the Declaration of Independence. They were white. They were mostly Christian. They were mostly God-fearing. And they were all church people shall we be standing. <laughs>